Hello and welcome to J Life with Daniel. I'm your host, Rabbi Daniel Levine. Okay, well, for the podcast this week, I thought I'd do something a little bit different. You know, I'm always putting out feelers out there for interesting people to talk to and interesting topics to broach on this podcast. And one of the things that I got a series of comments about people wanting me to address is, in a particular sense, the recent Amnesty International statement that Israel is an apartheid state. But in a more general sense, the perceived or the literal double standard that Israel is subjugated to, both in terms of the international community, in terms of the media, and even by many of those in the Jewish community. You know, many times I am a fierce proponent of what I like to call Israel education instead of Israel advocacy. One of the things that I constantly try to do as an educator through my writings and through my podcast is not to be an advocate in terms of teaching people what to think and how to defend Israel, but truly teaching them a wider educational angle of the country so that they can understand the different historical backgrounds, they can understand the ideological disputes at the root of Zionism. And through that knowledge, if they then conclude that they want to be an advocate for one thing or the other, great. But upon some initial reflection, there are times where being an advocate is necessary. There are times when truth is so fundamentally under assault that education needs to seed way to some sort of advocacy. I'm thinking about this from an analogy, right? Let's imagine that the goal of a teacher and the goal of an educator is always to inspire critical thinking, right? If we think about teaching a history class or teaching a class like that, Right? The goal is always to try to present different narratives and different stories and see how students can connect the dots in their own head via their own critical intellectual capabilities. But if somebody comes in and has a completely wrong narrative of history, and I'll get into some of the specifics in the Amnesty International a little bit later, but when truth is fundamentally under assault, when the entire nature of a country is dragged through the mud by using cheap, reductive words such as apartheid, even though there are really true and literal fundamental problems within Israeli society, when cheap reductionist terms such as apartheid is used, sometimes it is necessary to bring out the advocacy instead of just saying, well, listen, let's try to understand the complexity before we go to the complexity. And complexity is key for anybody who's ever talked to me about Israel knows and understands that there is nothing more important than understanding the multifaceted and complex nature of Zionism, of Israel, and of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But there are times when an initial glance says, we need to stand up for Israel here. We need to say emphatically and strongly that Israel is not an apartheid state. There are a myriad of reasons why Israel is not an apartheid state. And any attempt to claim that Israel is an apartheid state is clearly just a new age, recent term, and a long, old age of anti-Semitic stereotypes that tries to make either Jews, Judaism, or the Jewish community into whatever society abhors the most. So for the podcast today, I thought I would share a bunch of reflections and ideas that I've been thinking about for a long time about this wider idea of double standard when it comes to Israel. And this is going to have a lot of nuance. And there are going to be times where I'll say things where I'm sure will be challenging. And that's really the goal. If every time you listen to one of these podcasts, you come away with new ideas that are challenging you, I've done my job. 
Before we get into the podcast today, this podcast is brought to you by Congregation B'nai Tzedek in Fountain Valley. They are now offering their 12-week virtual introduction to Judaism class taught by their very own Rabbi Young. The class is going to be every Monday from 6 to 8, beginning March 7th. If you are curious about Judaism or just want a refresher course taught by an amazing teacher, this is the class for you. Call 714-963-4611 to register or for more information. That's 714-963-4611. Congregation B'nai Tzedek, where you matter. Okay, well, let's hop right into the topic. We're a couple of weeks past the Amnesty International report that Israel is an apartheid state. And Amnesty International is not the first well-known human rights organization to come out with a statement, right? We all know that B'Tselem, the Israel human rights organization, has done this a couple of years ago. Now, as I said in the introduction, at first glance, there is a long line of anti-Semitic precedent for calling Israel an apartheid state, right? We know that at the height of the USSR, the Soviet Union, they popularized the idea that Zionism equals racism, right? That was at a time in Western society where it was just at the pinnacle of civil rights and being called racist was, you know, one of the worst things possible. So of course you go to the Zionism is racism, right? In recent years, obviously racism is still terrible, but now some of the greatest ills in society are colonialism slash apartheid. And so now the narrative on Israel has switched to Israel being a colonialist entity or an apartheid entity. Again, this idea, this attempt to use these overly reductionist terms, and that I think is, is at, at first thought, what bothers me the most is not that they're criticizing Israel, right? Criticism of Israel is great if it makes sense, right? In some cases, I actually think that it's crucial, but it's cheap reductionist terms, right? If you come at me and tell me that Israel is an apartheid state, you've just ended the conversation because what do you want? If the entire fabric of the country is rooted in systemic apartheid, which I don't think it is, then okay, there's no conversation. You want that country to, to be disbanded. I'm not willing to consider Israel being disbanded. And the conversation ends, right? But imagine a different conversation. Imagine if Amnesty had come out and said, here are five to 10 individual things that we think that Israel is doing that we think is problematic. Let's have a conversation about this because we care about human rights applied equally across the board. But then we get into the double standard conversation, because, of course, if Amnesty or any other human rights organization went to almost any other country at Earth and looked at it with as strong of a magnifying glass as we see people looking at Israel, I think every country can be sensibly called apartheid or something, right? Societies are not perfect, right? This has been the history of humankind is trying to figure out how to run societies that are more and more perfect. And of course, right, if you want to come and say, well, we've done this extensive report in Israel and there are a lot of fundamental flaws in the way the country operates. Great, well, welcome to reality. But again, the attempt to, at the beginning, call Israel an apartheid state, right, it in some sense ends the conversation because anybody who's on the quote-unquote pro-Israel, Israeli or Zionist side is automatically going to block them off. Anybody who's on the anti-Israel side is going to cheer this and retweet it on Twitter. Yay, isn't this great? Another organization is, you know, pointing this out. And people in the middle, which is the vast majority of people, still have no idea what's going on. Because when you call Israel an apartheid state, what does that mean? Does that mean that Israel is operating according to the same apartheid tendencies as South Africa, right? Do most people even know what that was? Do most people know what a textbook definition of apartheid is, right? It really is not conducive to a conversation that's so desperately needed in order to get at solutions. 
taking a step back, let's talk about this idea of double standard, because I think I have some ideas that will hopefully be comforting to some and challenging to others. And given that I'm about to say four or five ideas, hopefully not all the same ideas will be comforting and challenging to the same people. When it comes to Zionism and Judaism, there is something fundamental that has to be pointed out. Somewhat paradoxically, Zionism is both the actualization of a multi-thousand year Jewish tradition and a simultaneous abrogation of that exact same Jewish tradition. I'm gonna say that again. Zionism is the actualization of a multi-thousand year Jewish tradition that has been thinking about, praying about, dreaming about, writing poetry about, and wishing and hoping to return to the land of Israel. After 2,000 years of exile, after 2,000 years of the diaspora, as being spread out throughout the earth, as not being the narrative of our own stories, of being constantly subjugated by a myriad of empires from Rome to Christians to the Islamic world, Jews have finally come home, right? We finally fulfilled our 2,000-year traditional dream. That is certainly one correct reading of the history, but it leaves something out. Because see, Zionism is also an abrogation of the exact same Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition in the last 2,000 years has not had a conception of a return to Israel that was brought about bottom up. What I mean by that is, sure, we have thought in Jewish tradition that we were going to return to Eretz Israel, but that was with the precondition of Mashiach, of, of the Messianic age. The idea that it would be brought about by humans, right, and not only by humans, but by secular humans, right, many of the early Zionists, almost all of them were socialist secular Jews, right, that would have been fundamentally perplexing to Jews of a past age. Let's imagine a bit of a thought experiment. Let's imagine we go back in time, right? We find a time machine and we go back into the 16th century to really any Jewish community we can imagine, right? We can go to Iran, Yemen, Russia, Germany, right? We pop into any Jewish village in the 16th or 17th century and we show them postcards of 2022 and we say, hey, we in 2022, you know, we've just had the state of Israel. It's been around for over 70 years. We have our own prime minister. We have our own government. You know, look at this. You know, we brought back the Shekel. We brought back Hebrew, right? The ancient Jewish language, right? They would immediately start to say, oh my goodness, Mashiach has arrived, right? For them, it would be fundamentally uncomprehensible that there would be a return to Israel without Mashiach. So they would sit there and they would be cheering and they would say, you know, Mashiach has finally come, right? The world must be perfect. The lion is now weighing with the lamb. And then let's say we continue that story and we tell them, well, actually, it's not as simple as that. Actually, this was brought about by, you know, a secular government, right? Obviously, the early government of Israel was primarily secular labor. And there's still actually a lot of wrong in the world, right? There's no third Beit HaMittash. There's no third temple, right? They would be confused. They would think you're lying. They would say it is impossible to have returned to have a Jewish commonwealth in the land of Israel without the precondition of Mashiach. And this is where we get into the fundamental paradox of contemporary Zionism. Zionism is the actualization of this multi-thousand year tradition. We have finally returned to Israel, but it also needs to be viewed as an abrogation of this tradition because traditional Jews did not have a conception of a secular state that was at the root of Judaism. Now that doesn't mean that Zionism is wrong. I wanna make that very clear. 
right? I think there are a lot of things in Jewish tradition that need to be challenged and evolved and updated, but it's worth pointing out and we can start to now understand why at the beginning of the Zionist movement, right? The beginning of political Zionist movement, we can think late 1800s, right? When we start getting all of these early essays that were coming out in support for a Jewish homeland, right? Most famously Herzl, but there were some before him. We can now understand why within the Jewish community, there was so much hesitation and downright animosity towards Zionism. Still today, among the Jewish community, the most anti-Zionist people are also the most quote-unquote traditional on a spectrum, right? We can imagine, right, the Haredi or Hasidic communities, right, the ones who are, for lack of a better term, most steeped in Jewish traditions of the 16th and 17th century, where we just popped back in from our time machine from, they're the most anti-Zionist on a theological level. For them, the return to Israel is not okay if it doesn't predate the Messiah, right? We can also understand, right? Again, this is all in the context of before the state of Israel is founded. We can understand from a progressive or liberal Jewish view, a Jewish community that has gone through the Haskalah, the Jewish enlightenment, and has been seeing increased rights being bestowed on Jews all throughout Europe. Again, this is pre-Holocaust. We can understand why they would think that the future of the Jewish community should not be to pigeonhole ourselves into a land in the Middle East that's going to constantly be in flux and it's going to be difficult to settle there and there's probably going to be a myriad of wars. Why not? You can imagine some early anti-Zionists in the late 1800s, early 1900s thinking to themselves, why not spend our time making sure that the countries that we live in now, be it France, be it England, be it Germany, become as liberal and as progressive as possible for the Jews to have equal rights. Now, again, of course, the Holocaust disproved that theory of change and safety for the Jewish people. But again, right now we're operating in the 19, early 1900s. We can understand why within the long legacy of Judaism, there was so much opposition to Zionism. But I want to make something really, really, really clear. A lot of the opposition of Zionism that was coming from the Jewish community in the late 1800s, early 1900s, is now being used as fodder from some within the Jewish community, but a lot of people within the international community as current arguments against the validity of the state of Israel. Let me give one concrete example, and then I'll talk about why this matters so much. Right? One of the most famous documents that come out of the American reform movement was the Pittsburgh Platform, right? The Pittsburgh Platform was written at a very early stage of Zionism and, the, you know, a pre-Holocaust stage of Zionism. And the Pittsburgh Platform denounces the idea of a Jewish return to Palestine slash the land of Israel. The Pittsburgh Platform further continues and says Judaism is not a nation, it's a religion, right? It interprets Judaism as a religion and as we'll talk about a little bit later, the argument goes, why should a religion need a country behind it, right? This is a misreading of what Judaism is. We'll talk about this a little bit later. But this is what the Pittsburgh Platform, right, the foundational document or one of the foundational documents of the American reform movement taught. Now, side point, the current reform movement no longer abides by the Pittsburgh Platform. It's actually quite interesting to read through the Pittsburgh Platform and look at the contemporary reform community. And it seems like almost none of these ideas 
are still at play within the contemporary reform community. I think the Pittsburgh platform is required reading for anybody in the American Jewish community trying to understand a lot of the tensions. The Pittsburgh platform was taken by actors into, in the international community. There was actually a fascinating article that I highly recommend. I forgot who wrote it, but it was called the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization's Rabbi. And it talks about how the PLO inherited the intellectual legacy of the American reform movement into their wider ideology of Judaism is a religion, a religion doesn't need a state, therefore the Jews who are coming from Europe to settle Palestine in their mind or the current land of Israel, they had to have been motivated by colonialism, not any type of return to their national homeland because after all, the Pittsburgh platform says Judaism is a religion and these are a bunch of secular Jews that are showing up. Right. So this has nothing to do with Judaism. Right. That's one of the problems. Right. Is that so quick in the early 1900s, there were people that were there and willing to come out publicly and say the Zionist movement has nothing to do with Judaism. By the way, a lot of early Zionists said this also. A lot of early Zionists defended Zionism, not because it was part of Jewish tradition, but because it was an important break from Jewish tradition. Right. That subtle difference is crucial. But now I want to make what I think is the most important point. I can understand why somebody pre-1948 or pre, let's say, even Holocaust would not be a Zionist. I understand the reading of Jewish history and Jewish tradition, and even the Haskalah that would say, you know what? I don't think Zionism is the best answer to this pressing problem that Jews were facing in post-Enlightenment and post-emancipated Europe. But Israel already exists. Right. That has already been decided. There's a big difference between being anti the future formation of a country and being anti a country once it exists. Let me give another metaphor. It is perfectly reasonable for a couple to decide that they do not want to have children. Right. There's a whole variety of good reasons to have children. There's a whole variety of good reasons not to have children. And I don't think any of us would blame somebody for saying, you know what? My wife and I have decided that we are not going to have children. Now, if somebody with a five-year-old child showed up at synagogue or at a restaurant and said, you know what? I really regret having children. I think I'm going to give away my five-year-old, right? That becomes a lot more problematic, right? That's akin in some sense to being an anti-Zionist before this formation of the state of Israel and being an anti-Zionist now, right? What does it mean to be an anti-Zionist now? If it means you don't fully agree with everything Israel is doing, okay, fine, then almost everybody's an anti-Zionist. But if it means that you fundamentally deny the right of the state to exist, right, you are trying to kill something that is already in existence. So, okay, fine. When it comes to criticism of Israel, and even when it comes to defending Israel, I personally don't even think oftentimes it makes sense to use the term Zionist and anti-Zionist, right? People all the time ask me, do you identify as a Zionist? And what I tell them is, yes, I identify as a Zionist because in the popular vernacular and the way that people talk about Israel, I think it's important to show that, yes, I am in favor of the state of Israel continuing to exist. But it's crazy to have an ideological word used to say, I want this thing that already exists to continue to exist, right? There's no equivalent for other countries, right? Think about this, right? 
you can write in America, there's no statement of saying, I want America to continue to exist. Sure, we have words like patriotism and things like that of how much do you identify with the nationalism of your own country? Sure, we can apply similar terms to Israel. But the idea that, oh, are you pro the continuing existence of Belgium or are you anti the continuing existence of Belgium? For Israel, that's not even a conversation I'm willing to have. In other words, if somebody denies Israel's right to exist, if somebody's read of history is saying, well, Israel has absolutely no right to exist, right? The only way to move forward is to have the entire country destroyed. Sure, yes, of course I'm against that. For everything else, does it make, the, does it make sense to use the term Zionist? Maybe, maybe not, right? I oftentimes, right, say I support Israel, here are which policies I like, here are which policies I don't like. But I think even the language that we use, right, we fall into the trap of being willing to question the existence of Israel. And just like in the child analogy, I think it's a very, very interesting conversation. Right now, it's theoretical because it's already happened. Right. It's an interesting theoretical conversation to have of the benefits and detriments of having children. That conversation is not as interesting and not as morally okay having it once you already have a three-year-old child and you're deciding whether or not to eradicate that child. Okay, moving on to this idea of Israel and the double standard. There is certainly a double standard when it comes to Israel, right? We don't have to look further than just the percentage and number of UN resolutions passed against Israel compared to virtually any other country in the world to understand that there is some hyper-focus when it comes to Israel. Now, on the one hand, I have zero doubt in my mind, zero doubt that some of this has to do with anti-Semitism. Note, I'm saying some and not all. In other words, I believe that anti-Semitism has, sorry, anti-Zionism has some of its roots in anti-Semitism. The double standard surrounding Israel has some of its roots in anti-Semitism, right? And here's how I think about it. There's been 2,000 years of anti-Semitism throughout the world, right? But we can think of this in terms of the Western world, right? Let's think about this from, from the perspective of the UN and EU, right? Primarily Western institutions, right? Even though the UN is technically the entire world, right? We can think of it as a primarily a Western idea of globalist politics for, to some extent. There's been 2,000 years of anti-Semitism and Jews being blamed for all social ills in society, right? That goes from deicide, right, the idea that Jews killed Jesus, to the blood libel, to the idea that Jews caused the bubonic plague, to the idea that Jews caused financial, financial collapse, to the idea that Jews caused communism, right? Whatever social ill you can point out in Europe in the last 2,000 years, I can almost guarantee you I can find some anti-Semitic document to fit the idea that, well, that was the Jews' fault. All of a sudden, right, you have emancipation and you have, right, the post-Holocaust order that the West has tried to do, which, in my opinion, has been fairly philo-Semitic, right? Europe and America post-Holocaust, sure, there are still problems, right, when it comes to Jews, but things generally have been good for Jews in Europe, right, not considering Russia and what happened there, but within Europe and America, things have been generally good for Jews since the Holocaust. But the idea that 2,000 years of legacy and Jew hatred and scapegoating 
all of a sudden dissipates in 1948 because of the foundation of the state of Israel, right? That's ludicrous, right? If you spend 2000 years circulating some ideas, 2000 years quite literally demonizing the Jews for everything, it doesn't take a genius to connect. Well, all of a sudden now when the Jews have a state, right? There's probably going to be some residual ideological hatred of the Jewish community based off of that. There's almost an irony here about American politics, right? The same groups that are so quick, in my opinion, rightfully so, to point out the systemic racism in America, their argument is there's been hundreds of years of unequal treatment. Of course, some of that is going to stay within the wider systems and within the wider ideological roots of many of the things we've set up in America. But you don't think 2,000 years of anti-Semitism culminating in the Holocaust is going to produce some residual effects in the way people think of the state of Israel, right? I find that a very, very ludicrous example, right? And maybe it's even, right? And I'm going to say this very strongly, maybe it's even the result of their implicit anti-Semitism that allows them to be blinded from the obvious anti-Semitism here at the root of the double standard. In other words, I don't think at any point in Jewish history, specifically vis-a-vis the West, when there was anti-Semitism, right, anti-Semitism was always a thing that was in vogue, however anti-Semitism manifested itself. And I don't think, you know, you know, there are probably some times where people were proud to be anti-Semites, but for a lot of it, right, you can almost imagine some argument of a medieval Christian saying, I don't eat Jews. I only hate what Jews believe, right? If Jews convert to Christianity, we love them, right? So we can imagine an anti-Zionist saying the same thing. I don't hate Jews. I just hate what 90 plus percent of them happen to believe. If they come join me on the anti-Zionist side, they're also going to be accepted, right? So I think, of course, some of the double standard when it comes to Israel has to do with anti-Semitism. Some of it also has to do with ignorance. And I think this is an important distinction from anti-Semitism. Right, there's this idea, right, never attribute to malice what you can attribute to stupidity. And I think that some of this is also at play when it comes to a lot of the strong anti-Zionist or the strong double standard stance that Israel is dragged through. Again, from an incorrect reading of Jewish history, where Judaism is reduced to a religion, then I'm in agreement that Zionism might be colonialism. Let me say that again. If it is true that Judaism is a religion, which I don't think it's true, but if that is true, then Zionism might be colonialism. Because if Judaism is a religion, just like Christianity is a religion, then it means we have certain beliefs. If you buy into those beliefs, you're a Jew. If you don't buy into those beliefs, you're not a Jew. There's no sense of peoplehood. There's no sense of ethnicity, right? There's no sense of belonging to a land, right? It happens to be a religion. And it happened to be that a lot of Zionists, right? They had no use for that religion, right? They were moving to the Middle East for a whole variety of other political reasons, aka Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism, aka we can be full anti-Zionist without it being any ounce of anti-Semitism. Now, again, this is an incorrect understanding of Judaism. This is an imposed, westernized, overly categorized definition of trying to fit Judaism into a box. Now, one of the best things about Judaism is that Judaism cannot be fit into a box. Judaism is simultaneously a religion, or at the same time an ethnicity, at the same time a culture, at the same time a nation slash peoplehood, 
right? My favorite definition has always been the Mordechai Kaplan definition that Judaism is a civilization, right? It doesn't make sense to reduce Judaism to any of these ideas, right? How can we consider Judaism a religion when I'll give the following case? According to traditional Judaism, if my mother is Jewish, even if I become an atheist, even if I convert to Christianity, even if I convert to Christianity, my children, my children remain Christian, my grandchildren remain Christian, and my great-grandchildren go through a genealogical, right, probably by the time I have great-grandchildren, they're not even going to need to go through old papers, right, they're just going to look on social media, and they find out that my mother was Jewish. They are Jewish, right? They're not Jewish according to some wider, right, religious idea, although halachot do play here, but because of the understanding of the ethnic nature of Jewish identity in a way that with Christianity and Islam, which are quote unquote more pure religions, you can easily become or cease to become that thing by a matter of beliefs. With Judaism, we've never viewed belief as central to Jewish identity. There's a famous teshuvah, famous responsa that was written by Rashi, right? Probably the most famous medieval commentator on the Torah and Talmud, that they sent him a message saying that a couple had converted to Christianity. This is in the time of the early Crusades. A, couple, a Jewish couple had been forcibly converted to Christianity. They had gotten married to each other as Christians. Then they had wanted to convert back to Judaism and get divorced. And the question was, was that marriage, when they were Christians, was that considered binding as a Jewish wedding, which needs to take place between two Jews? And Rashi basically says, yes, they never ceased to be Jewish, even if they converted away. Right? That is an understanding of Jewish identity that does not fit into the classic model of what it means to be a religion. On the other hand, Judaism can't just be an ethnicity because we allow people to convert into it. Yet a third category is all Jews today, except for people that have joined the Jewish community, can trace their genetics back to the Middle East, back to the land of Israel. Judaism arose from the land of Israel, right? unlike most religions, and here I think is the kicker in terms of differentiating Judaism from traditional religions. Most traditional religions started with a person or people coming up with ideas and then going to try to spread those ideas, right? So we can think about Jesus, we can think about Muhammad, we can think about, right, um, John Smith, right? We can think about all of these people. The way that Judaism was formed was the other way around. Judaism, according to both one narrative in Tanakh and also according to dominant academic slash historical view of the origins of Judaism. It was a group of people that were living within the land of Israel wherein that started to be bound together by certain cultural, political, and geographical interests. But it was never one person coming down and top down giving them ideas, right? It arose bottom up. And so you have 100,000 people, right? We can imagine the ancient Israelites and there's not going to be one idea of how to be an Israelite there, which is why debate has always been at the center of the Jewish community, because Judaism did not necessarily, from a historical perspective, start top down, but it arose bottom up. And therefore, the intrinsic Jewish connection to the land of Eretz Israel is fundamental, right? It's not fundamental because Jews have a religious connection to the land of Israel, but Jews have an indigenous ethnic slash national connection to Israel. So I think ignorance of that idea is the second reason for so many double standards when it comes to Israel. Now, two more ideas. Israel is subjected to a double standard, sure for anti-Semitism, 
sure, for incorrect readings of history. But also, if we're being honest with ourselves, Israel is also subjected to a double standard because it's one of America's biggest allies. America does give billions of dollars of aid to Israel, and Israel is such an important political idea within the wider American political sphere. In other words, Israel, both in recent years, but even before that, has been one of the biggest political issues in the country. Now, one of the reasons for this is because of the massive evangelical community in America that they're not necessarily single issue voters, but there are a couple issues that are at the forefront of their policy, and Israel happens to be one of them. Right? There are so many other reasons. Right, Israel is a strategic outpost in the Middle East, right? especially at the height of the Soviet Union, right? when America and Russia were battling and jockeying for really who was going to get to control the future of international politics. We know that so many countries across the Middle East, right, they deferred to the Soviets. So Israel was such a crucial U.S. ally there that, that America basically made it one of its largest international geopolitical interests to back up Israel. Now, again, you could imagine from internal American politics, there being people, and this is actually an interesting time when you get the far left and the far right here agreeing on certain issues, is saying, why should we be spending so much time worrying about Israel, right? Who cares, right? According to their calculation, it doesn't help American interests more than the cost is. Now, I think from a political perspective, that's crazy, right? I think that America gains just as much, if not more, from its relationship with Israel than Israel gains, right? The stuff that Israel gives America in terms of medical research, agricultural, in terms of cybersecurity, right? That's a huge one in terms of intelligence, right? That is for sure worth the billions of dollars that America is spending per year. But you can imagine a contemporary American political argument that says, why is Israel so ubiquitous within our American political sphere, right? And that's why you get people that are uniquely holding Israel to under a microscope. Now, there's a bigger picture way to think about this, right? The reason why Israel is so ubiquitous within our politics is for a couple of reasons, right? I already talked about the evangelical community, right? Even if we think about where Israel is located on a map, right? One of the reasons in the ancient world and in the modern world why Israel is so strategically important is because it's at the crossroads of Europe, Asia, and Africa. If you're an ancient empire trying to go throughout the world and you want to, quote unquote, conquer the world, Israel is a great place to set up shop. Right? Obviously, in the modern world, you no longer need to conquer the world through literal boots on the ground. But in some sense, the geographical significance of Israel is just as important as it was thousands of years ago. And so, again, we have a land that is uniquely geographically positioned. We have a land that has a unique relationship with Israel. We have a land that has a unique religious history as being considered one of the holiest places in the world for Christians, one of the holiest places in the world for Muslims obviously the most important place in the world for Jews, why would we assume that that nation was going to be treated like any, like any other nation? In other words, it doesn't take the contemporary state or land of Israel, sorry, it doesn't take the contemporary state of Israel for me to have made a prediction that in the 21st century, with all of what we're going through politically, that Israel, this land was going to have a unique status in terms of how different nations and different religious groups and different ethnic groups and different communities viewed it, right? All you need to do is look at history, right? Just if you think about Jerusalem, Jerusalem has been conquered and reconquered about 30 to 40 times 
in the last 3,000 years, right? It's been destroyed, burned to the ground multiple times, right? Why would we assume that the 21st century would be any different when it came to the unique status of this place? So there's something unique about this land of Israel, right? Maybe we can attribute religious significance to that uniqueness, right? Maybe somebody would just like to attribute historical significance. Maybe it's just geographical significance. But there is something special about this land. And some of the double standard in terms of attention that's paid to this, right? Not all of it has to be rooted in, oh, obviously, these are a bunch of anti-Semites, or, oh, obviously, this is just an incorrect, ignorant reading of history. Some of it is just because history itself has looked at Israel more closely. Israel has played a bigger role in history disproportionate to its size in terms of world history and religious history that I would not expect in the 20th and 21st century for that lopsided significance to be treated any differently. One final idea, and this is something that I think about a lot, and this is something that I think will potentially be challenging for people. I, Daniel Levine, am okay when people, especially in the Jewish community, want to hold Israel to a double standard. I'm going to say it again. Even if I disagree with some of the conclusions and some of the policies of those within the Jewish community that are overly critical of Israel, I understand and I respect the fact that there are people in the Jewish community that want to hold Israel to a double standard. Before I tell why, I want to tell one quick story from Jewish history, right? The story is a story that took place 3,000 years ago, right? You can find the story in the pages of our Tanakh when we're introduced to the prophet Shmuel or Samuel. And Shmuel was a traveling prophet who went throughout the ancient land of Israel. And he was listening to the needs of different communities that were going around the land of Israel. And one of the things that he heard time and time again from the different people that made up the disparate tribes that made up ancient Israel was, we look over at all the other nations in the world and they all have kings. Why is ancient Israel, why are we the only ones who have this very weird structure of having traveling prophets, or we can all think of it in terms of judges slash shoftim being in charge of us? Give us a king so we can be like every other nation. The people told Shmuel. The ancient Israelite community, 3,100 years ago, 3,000 years ago, they were asking Shmuel, right, the leader of the Jewish community, why are we as a people and as a land being treated to a double standard, right? Everybody else has kings. We look around us, they have kings. Why are we treated like any, like a unique nation here? So in the story, Shmuel goes to God. And Shmuel says, hey, listen, here's what the people want. And God's answer is that I have now know that the people have rejected me. In wanting to be just like every other nation, God says the people have rejected me. I have a lot of sympathy for this view, even if I disagree. In other words, if I was a political strategist in the Iron Age in ancient Israel, I might have said, hey, listen, I think it really makes sense for the Jews to elect the king. Look at all the good that King David and King Solomon did in terms of uniting the kingdom, in terms of alliances with other communities, in terms of building the Beit HaMikdash, building the temple. So I'm a political pragmatist, but I could understand the prophetic tradition. I could understand Shmuel slash Samuel 
and God's apprehension to this idea of the Jews being like any other people. Israel as a place, as an idea, as a political entity, for me, is an extension of my Judaism, right? I am not able to separate Judaism, Jewish tradition, Torah, from the land and the state of Israel. Because Israel is an extension of my Judaism, if I think that Judaism has something exceptional to offer, then I also must think that Israel has something exceptional to offer. I do not, in every single day when I affirm to live my life as a religious Jew, going around teaching the ideas of Judaism and Torah, I am not doing that because I think Judaism and Torah is just as good as every other worldview. I don't think it's superior in some objective condescending sense, but I do think there is something unique and exceptional about Judaism and Torah. And for me personally, when I see people that are steeped in the Jewish community and Torah doing something wrong, that upsets me more than when I see people of other ideological, religious, or national persuasions doing something wrong. In other words, I hold the Torah to a double standard. I hold Judaism to a double standard. I want Judaism and the Torah to be held to a higher standard in my own mind than other nations in the world. Right? Imagine this analogy again, right? I have a child. I don't want my child to be average. I want my child to be better. And therefore, when my child takes a math test or when my child is playing on a sports team, right? I'm going to try to push them and encourage them to be the best, right? If they get average on a test, right? I'm not going to say, oh, okay, cool. They are the same as everybody else, right? I'm going to try to push them to be better. Now, important to point out, I don't want the teacher to do that. So I wouldn't want the teacher in grading my child's math test to say, I'm going to treat Daniel's child to a double standard, right? So I don't like that the UN treats Israel to a double standard, but from an internal inter-Jewish conversation of how I view Israel and Zionism and how I view younger Jews that are parts of organizations that might make us and even me feel uncomfortable in terms of some of the policies and platforms they are putting forward. When it comes to Israel, I am okay with that. I understand where it's coming from, right? Obviously, we can have a nuanced conversation of exactly where I think one should, if there is a place to draw a line, where I think it should be. But the idea that Jews want to hold Israel to a double standard, that is a 3,000-year-old Jewish tradition. The last thing I'll say here is if we continue to read through the Tanakh, one of the ideas that's ubiquitous throughout Tanakh is the idea that the land of Israel is unique, and not just unique in terms of the physical land, but unique in terms of the ethics that have to be practiced within the land. The Tanakh is full of references of Israel as a land that will vomit out nations that are not treating it, that are not treating other people that are in the land with the ethics that are required, right? That's the rationale within the Tanakh, whether or not we believe or agree with this, put it aside. It's the rationale in the Tanakh for why the nations that were in the land of Israel before Am Yisrael or B'nai Yisrael came in, it's the reason why they deserved to be kicked out because they were treating each other terribly. They were doing child sacrifices. Right? It's the reason that many of our sources give for our exile. Right? Why did the Jewish people merit to be kicked out of the land of Israel in the sixth century? Well, our sources tell us because that community was steeped in bloodshed, steeped in adultery, and steeped in idol worship. Right? It was a society that did not have 
basic respect for other people and fundamental values. In that sense, being overly critical of Israel from within the Jewish community or holding Israel to a double standard from within the Jewish community is as Jewish of an idea as ideas come. In other words, the refusal to hold Israel to a double standard from within the Jewish community, that paradoxically is what's going against Jewish tradition. The idea that Jews should become like everybody else in the world, right? This was Herzl's idea, right? Herzl in his early stages of life was an assimilationist, right? Herzl's idea for how to solve the Jewish question, right? How do we solve this problem of Jews have been emancipated but not treated equally? So in the beginning of his life, Herzl's idea was that Jews just need to assimilate into wider European culture. Herzl soon realized that it didn't exist, right? There was the Dreyfus affairs, there were some other things that happened. And Herzl at the end of the day decided that, okay, if Jews cannot assimilate as individuals, Jews need to assimilate as a nation into the nations of the world and create a state just like every other. So Jews are just treated like every other people. Herzl wanted to take all of the uniqueness and the exceptionalism out of the Jewish story, right? For those interested in this tangent, right, you can actually read Achad Am's critique of Herzl. And that's where Achad Am comes in as such a major ideological figure in early Zionism and why he's one of my favorite Jewish figures. But paradoxically, it's the desire to not treat Israel to a double standard from within the Jewish community that is going against Jewish tradition. And so to conclude, I believe that a lot of anti-Zionism and a lot of the holding Israel to a double standard is rooted in anti-Semitism, especially when it comes externally. But because Israel is such a fundamental part of my personal Judaism, if I refuse to view Israel the same way I view everything else in Judaism, which is I want to continue challenging, pushing, and seeking, and I want to hold that to a double standard because I believe that a person who has Torah at the center of their life should treat and act in a standard that is higher than somebody who does not have Torah in their life. I also want to believe that a state that is the actualization of 3,000 years of tradition should also hold themselves to a double standard. And that's why, forget the Amnesty International report, right? Much of that is rooted in historic anti-Semitism or in naivety or ignorance about Israel. But also, there are kernels of truth there, right? And that's where I think the community needs to have important conversations. Now, on the one hand, some of, some of the truth in the Amnesty International report, we can say, who cares? All countries do this. But I don't want to say that. And increasingly from talking to young Jews, that's not the answer they want to hear. They don't want to hear a type of whataboutism or an equation, right? We can't go around teaching people that Judaism is special, but Israel should be treated like, like everyone else, right? That is not a coherent worldview. And so we need to simultaneously defend and be advocates for Israel against the nasty and nefarious anti-Semitic forces that are there that are trying to deny the fundamental right of the Jewish people to their historic and indigenous homeland. That is true. It is also true that we need to foster and foment a healthy dose of criticism of Israel and not fall into the trap of saying, oh, this is a double standard, I don't wanna hear it. Or why are you talking about Israel, right? When there are so many other countries doing terrible things, right? Why aren't you talking about China? Why aren't you talking about Russia? Right. As a Jew, I think what's happening in China and Russia is terrible, and Jewish values say that we should try to 
stop them and we should try to fix what's wrong there. But as a Jew, my mind is always first and foremost on Judaism, the Jewish community, Torah, and yes, Israel. And therefore, when I'm thinking about fixing a lot of the ills that are happening in the world, me, like many young Jews, are going to think about Israel first. And so my desire to hold Israel to a double standard is not because of my animosity for Israel. It's actually because of my love for Israel. And this is where I think a lot of people in the Jewish community have a misread of a lot of younger Jews, especially younger Jews that are joining organizations that are very critical to Israel. Again, I don't necessarily agree with their policy, but the spirit that they're bringing to the conversation, we have to take a step back and think to ourselves, is that so different than the spirit that prophets like Yeshayahu and Yechezkel and Amos brought to the wider Jewish community when they were deploring many of the leaders in the Jewish community? And if you read the first chapter of Yeshayahu, if you read through the book of Amos, they're constantly talking about this idea of why have we forgotten some of the fundamental values that make Israel Israel, right? You're so, we're so worried about the rituals, right? In some way, I view the young left Jewish critique of Israel to be following in that tradition, even if it makes me uncomfortable and even if I think they get some of the policies wrong. Okay, I know I just said a lot and very much in the spirit of this podcast and what I'm trying to do is I very, very, very much invite feedback, right? Whether or not that's a form of written feedback, right? My email is d-l-e-v-i-n-e-21 at gmail.com. Or I really hope to have this inspire future podcast. If you're a future guest on the podcast or you know somebody who wants to be on the podcast, use this as inspiration and fodder for more conversation. Again, the other thing that has been a staple in our Jewish tradition for thousands of years is the idea of machloket l'shem shemayim, right? Having debates for a higher purpose or the sake of heaven. The Jewish community is at our best when we have Hillel's view and Shammai's view and they're both in the room together and they're both critiquing and steel manning, right? Giving the, po- the strongest possible read of each other's opinion. And therefore the total knowledge, the total truth and the total progress of morals and community can be fulfilled, right? It's when we refuse to hear out those who disagree with us that's when we fall into a trap of narrow-mindedness. And so every single thing I said today, just a personal disclaimer, right? I'm sure that even if I listen to this podcast back, there will be individual sentences that I disagree with. I'm sure that in two years, there are going to be sentences that I disagree with here. I'm sure that you listening to this right now, you already can think of three to five things that you disagree with. That is a good thing. The only way to progress as a society intellectually, politically, morally, whatever you have it, is for people to discuss ideas in a way where they understand, right? I hope no matter how much you agree or disagree with anything I've said in the previous podcast, you understand that I am coming at this with as good of intentions as possible. And it's when we stop looking at the intentions of people we have disagreements with as ill, and we start to say, Your intentions are good, but your ideas are wrong. That's great. If you think my ideas are wrong, I would love to talk. But please do not misrepresent any intentions. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Like I said, this was a little bit different. And I will see you next time.